1: up on today's show it's the day after the alberta budget we will speak with finance minister travis taves and leader of the opposition rachel notley of course the very latest on the situation in ukraine we'll get some expert analysis from tom nichols we'll also chat with erica simpson associate professor in the department of political science at western alberta's budget is out of the red and back in the black it's true. Uh, budget came out yesterday forecasting a surplus of about $500 million, slightly more than $500 million, and small surpluses also projected in the years after that. Quite a turnaround. Uh, a huge turnaround, a pretty good deficit was being forecasted as recently as one year ago. Uh, we know the surging price of oil is largely responsible for this turnaround, a massive revenue windfall there. And there also has been a reduction in spending. So both of those narratives are true, but um, it's uh, regardless, it's an enormous turnaround. And joining us to walk us through it, we have Travis Tapes, Finance Minister for the province of Alberta. Minister Tapes, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us.
2: Yeah, my pleasure,
1: Shane. Um, Really is uh, an incredible turnaround from where we were just a year ago. And I guess the question a lot of people are asking now is a lot of it has to do with oil revenues. There's no question about that. Are we back on that same old bust boom cycle and uh, putting a lot of our eggs into a basket that really we don't control?
2: Well, well, Shay, <clears throat> there's no doubt that the uh, increased energy prices are, are a, a big part of the story here in terms of our, our fiscal turnaround. And, uh, and and yes we continue to have a volatile revenue structure in the province of Alberta but you know the story of this balanced budget is much is much greater than just uh, improved energy prices let's remember for the budget projections we use $70 a $70 wti price for 2022 69 for 23 and 66 for 24 so we're not we weren't using 85 and 90 dollars prices or $100 prices uh, with with this budget uh, we balanced the budget on 79.69, or pardon me, 70.69 and 66 dollar WTI prices. So, uh, a big part of the uh, improvement in our in our fiscal trajectory is because we have taken a disciplined approach to spending. We inherited a government that spent 10 billion more uh, than similar provinces. We inherited a government that uh, effectively was increasing spending by four percent per year. We flattened that spending curve out. By next year, we align our per capita spending with comparative provinces, which was a key fiscal anchor, and we've put this province on a much more sustainable fiscal trajectory. But there's a third element here. Part of the story in this budget is about a more diversified economy. We've done all we could to position the Alberta economy for investment attraction, economic growth, which results in expanded fiscal capacity. And we're seeing that in our revenue lines. as, As we project energy prices to tail off in the next couple of years, our gross revenues keep growing. Why? Because we're expecting larger personal income tax revenues and corporate income tax revenues from
1: expanded fiscal capacity and a more diversified economy. Um, you know, not long ago, a few years ago, and obviously, we were in a very different position. Uh, you're, you're, you, you famously said that diversification was a luxury we couldn't afford at the time. So obviously, you're saying that things have changed. Um, there are some people saying, you know, we're not doing enough to diversify, we're not doing enough in terms of carbon capture and, you know, clean energy and things like that. So how much of a how focus are you putting on the fact that we need to try and do something differently, even within the energy industry itself?
2: Shay, I need to correct that, that uh, the context of that comment. That comment came as a result of a question that was put to me regarding a sales tax. And at that time, I responded and said, we don't have the luxury of diversifying our revenue streams into a sales tax. We're all about economic diversification. We've been about economic diversification from day one. And right now,
1: uh, economic diversification is a big part of the, the story in Budget 2022. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to have to take your word for it. I don't have the quote in front of me right now. Fair enough. Um, One of the questions that I wanted to ask you about the budget, and and one thing we're hearing from a lot of people, we know inflation is a huge problem for a lot of people right now, especially around their utility bills, the price of energy. We're seeing that, you know, heating our home, electricity, all the rest of these things. A lot of people were hoping to see some relief, immediate relief to try and make things a little better for people having a hard time making ends meet. And there's none of that in this budget to help people in Alberta today.
2: Sure. I mean, you know what? I uh, appreciate you raising this. This is an issue on, um, on the minds of many Albertans. We're well aware of that. We have increasing uh, costs. We're projecting inflation rates of, of 3.2% for this upcoming year. They're beginning to, to tail off to be 2.2% in the out year. But inflation is a significant issue. Now, the big question is, what can governments do that's, that's truly beneficial uh, to citizens during times of inflation? Now, what we have done is we've uh, basically put in place uh, a consumer price protection uh, measure. That measure was patterned after the measure Ralph Klein brought in in the the early 2000s when natural gas prices were making a run. And this measure will uh, ultimately provide uh, price relief if natural gas prices uh, take off like they are in in Asia and Europe. So so we have implemented that in this budget. But, you know, beyond that, uh, in my view, what the the best thing, most durable, most beneficial thing uh, governments can do during times of inflation is to deliver government services most efficiently, spend less, borrow less, and tax less right now, we have a thirty eight hundred dollar tax advantage in this province if you're a if you're a family of four making seventy five thousand dollars compared to Ontario. We need to ensure that we have a, a huge tax advantage we need to ensure that um, that we're delivering government services most cost effectively and keeping taxes low that fundamentally that's what we need to focus on now we've added 250 million dollars to our our contingency uh, in in the upcoming budget we recognize that it's a tough time in terms of cost pressures and so I've we're, we're, I will be engaging Albertans listening to Albertans considering every policy option but but our fundamental premise is we need to deliver efficient government, we need to ensure that we can keep taxes low and keep life as affordable as possible for Albertans.
1: Just to go back to, you know, the natural gas uh, program, uh, as you say, I mean, you're talking about something that might... There was a lot of ifs and a lot of maybes uh, in October of next year if a price hits 650, which um, is quite a ways to go. So, um, I guess the question is yeah, but what about now? I think there's a lot of people out there saying they're in a really, really tough spot today based on energy bills and utility bills and things like that. Next October, we'll worry about when it comes, but what can we do now?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, we're going to continue to to listen to to Albertans and, and consider our policy options. Look, uh, on on the utility piece, there's natural gas pricing. And, and realistically, with what we see going on in Europe right now, the tragedy yeah. we see taking place in Ukraine, uh, we could see um, natural gas spikes over the next number of months. And if we see those before October, we will consider moving that uh, price protection measure forward, uh, m- move it up so that we can provide protection, price protection for Albertans. But uh, Right now, you know, a lot of the increased costs are experienced in, in electricity bills. And, mm-hmm. and that's a very complicated topic in terms of cost. We have a system that was overbuilt by previous governments. The previous government added $7.5 billion to transmission build during their term. We've turned that way down. We've only spent $100 million, which is just a small fraction of what pre- previous governments have spent. Listen, once, once that infrastructure is built, at some point we have to pay for it. And it's going to be either consumers or taxpayers that are paying for it. The the other challenge is the previous government, I would suggest, uh, perhaps hastily moved from coal to gas-fired electricity in this province. In fact, um, Alberta consumers right now are paying $1.3 billion because of the costs to get out of those power purchase agreements uh, prematurely. That's included in, in the electricity bill. And, of course, there's a carbon tax that overlays all of this in terms of increased costs, utility costs. And we have a federal government that wants to increase the carbon tax threefold over the next seven years. These are our challenges. These are issues and policies that we're looking to implement defensible, durable beneficial solutions for Albertans for, but none of them are simple.
1: Let's get to healthcare. A uh, lot of money being spent on healthcare, um, but you know, you as, as it comes with a budget. I mean, you're no stranger to this. There's always people that have problems or you know they wanted more or whatever the case may be when we talk about healthcare a lot of it you know and the premier has been talking about trying to increase capacity in our healthcare system uh, how covid has exposed some real shortages and some issues and some pressure points so we're talking about seeing an increase of about 3% in healthcare money which which is substantial but well below the rate of both inflation and population growth so if the goal is to address capacity issues you're actually spending fewer real dollars if you take the other factors and how do you manage to address the problem without spending at least to match inflation and population growth.
2: Well well Shay, we're doing we're doing a, a, a few things on the healthcare front. Firstly, we added nine hundred million dollars to health base base budget last year. That remains uh, in in this upcoming fiscal year. So we added nine hundred million last year. We're adding a further six hundred million next year, and it'll it'll be a further one point eight billion over the course of the fiscal plan. So those are material reinvestments into healthcare. They're necessary, they're essential. But at the same time, we're working to deliver healthcare more efficiently uh, in this province. We inherited, a, again, a government that delivered the most expensive healthcare in the country. In a country that delivers the most expensive healthcare in the OECD. And we have to find ways to deliver more, more cost-effectively. That's why we contracted Ernst Young early days They provided us with about 50 recommendations that would ultimately improve the delivery of health care and do it at a much lower cost. So while we're increasing health budget, we're also implementing measures and strategies that will result in more cost-effective, better health care service in the province.
1: Um, Just the response from the big city mayors. uh Some concern there. Let's just start with uh, Edmonton, if we can. And uh, I'm sure you've heard Amarjeet Sohi's response to the budget yesterday. Just um, this is what he had to say. Uh, We can listen to this and and then get your reaction. Edmontonians deserved better from this government. When Edmonton succeeds, Alberta succeeds. And this government failed to recognize that. So he says he had four specific requests that he brought to you and he says they were all ignored.
2: Well, I, I, um, that is not accurate. Uh, we directly funded one of his requests and that was a $5 million investment into downtown revitalization. That was a direct response to Mayor Soheed's uh, budget ask. On top of that, a key priority uh, for the city of Edmonton uh, is affordable housing. And we are going to be making 100 uh, adding. 118 million dollars to our affordable housing effort over the over the course of the fiscal plan. Much of that will be will be spent in Edmonton, no doubt. And so, I would invite the mayor and council to work cooperatively with Minister Pond to ensure that we can uh, together uh, build and invest in in an affordable housing strategy that will matter to Edmontonians. And the the other thing, I mean, we we are. Uh, we have in play a number of key capital projects in this budget for Edmonton. We've we've identified two new school builds as of this budget. We're investing 50 million dollars into the neuro- neurosciences uh, department at the University of Alberta Hospital to expand co- uh, critical capacity there in a cutting edge uh, healthcare uh, service delivery model. We've, we're investing in uh, in you know significant transportation. Uh, road expansion and repair efforts uh, with within the city of Edmonton. we've got two point eight billion dollars set aside for, uh, for for the transit systems for Calgary and Edmonton. there's a lot in this budget and in this fiscal plan
1: for the city of Edmonton. Um, how do you respond to his um, comments that he has reached out? to the province and to the minister is responsible. He's tried, he says, as hard as he can. Uh, he says, but there's a stark difference in how Edmonton was treated, how badly Edmonton is treated, and how much money Calgary got. He went on to say, I can only assume the decisions are being ba- made based on where UCP MLAs are.
2: Yeah, that, that's absolutely uh, not true. Um, we at, And I, I will, um, you know, I'll share with you how we at Treasury Board take a look at, at capital uh, priorities. We, we give ministries certainly a fair bit of deference as they work to understand where their greatest need is, where the greatest priorities for, for the capital projects are in their ministry, whether that be health, transportation or education or, or other ministries. And we evaluate a, and review the criterion around each of these projects based on, you know, the, the value for taxpayers, the need for the project, um, the, the, um, the readiness of the project to go forward. We do not cast a political lens on the capital projects across this province. And so some years, for sure, some years, rural Alberta ends up getting a disproportionate uh, share of capital spending, perhaps, in our capital plan. Other years, it's Edmonton. Other years, it's Calgary. But at the end of the day, we ensure that we're funding the greatest need based on defensible criterion. And what I would say in this fiscal plan, Edmonton has a significant
1: part in it um last one and then i'll let you get out of here talking about post secondary 171 million dollars over three years to try and increase the number of post-secondary spots in high demand areas it seems like it's fairly targeted which universities are applauding and saying this will be very helpful but at the same time they're saying but we're still dealing with these cuts with these big broad-based cuts is there any way to reconcile the two
2: well, I, I, I think we are. Look, we inherited a post-secondary um, education system, a world-class system, I will say, but a system that was very, very costly compared to other provinces. And so we did reduce government funding to, to the system, but at the same time, we worked with institutions as they worked to bring their costs down. And I have to say, I have to congratulate our world-class post-secondary institutions because um, m- most of them, in fact, all of them, have delivered real savings for, for students and for Alberta taxpayers. So that's been a necessary effort, and uh, and they've achieved some real efficiencies over the last three years. Right, That allows us to make targeted uh, reinvestments into post-secondary uh, education, and we're targeting occupations where there's real need. We're targeting occupations where there's going to be real demand and opportunity for Albertans to step into great careers, great jobs, great occupations. So these include you know, t- uh, high technology occupations, uh, data science, uh, information technology, coding. It includes uh, agriculture sciences, it includes finance. It's gonna include healthcare disciplines. Again, these are occupations that are and will be in great demand we're going to make targeted investments to expand
1: capacity. Minister, the government's been in place for three years now. Are we at the point where we can stop saying we inherited this from the earlier government? We inherited this from the... At some point, when does your government come, become responsible for where we are?
2: Well, shay we, we take full responsibility for where we are. Today, we've got a balanced budget. Today, we have an economy that is growing. We're leading the nation in economic growth. We take full responsibility for that. But at times, it's important to ensure that all all of us as Albertans know the context in which we
1: have been making uh, fiscal decisions. Gotcha. Minister, I appreciate your time very much today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. That is Travis Taves, who is the Minister of Finance for the province of Alberta. Earlier this morning, Finance Minister Travis Taves joined us to talk about yesterday's budget announcement from the provincial government. Quite a turnaround. Quite a turnaround in fortunes uh, for the province of Alberta, no doubt about that. Now, let's go across the aisle and get the opposition viewpoint. Rachel Notley joins us now to discuss what um, we heard yesterday in the budget. Um, Ms. Notley, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. It's good to be here. Yeah, why don't we just start with the overall impression of this budget. I mean, really, it is a remarkable improvement from where we were one year ago, from a deficit uh, forecast uh, to now a surplus of almost half a billion dollars.
3: Uh, no, that's quite true. It is a dramatic shift and it's entirely attributable. Well, well, not entirely. There's really two things. The biggest thing, of course, is uh, the uh, remarkable jump in oil and gas prices uh, on an international level. So, you know, I mean, obviously that's good news for Albertans. Um, And then the other thing, of course, is that there's a big jump in funding from the federal government. Um, But what I will say is that the the problem is, is with that, um, what we're seeing is two things. First of all, there's a shift of more and more costs onto the back of regular families in terms of uh, taxes being paid. And and then on top of that, we're seeing, we saw very little relief in the budget uh, for families who are being overwhelmed by uh, spiraling um Uh, inflationary pressures, particularly uh, when you look at our utility bills and insurance costs and things like that. So it it wasn't a budget. It was a budget that was designed for a finance minister, not a budget that was designed for the people he was elected to serve.
1: Yeah, I think some of the immediate relief things that you bring up are are, are very, very valid points. I just want to go back to the beginning, though. I mean, when you talk about what went into reversing the fortunes, you're right. I mean, oil revenue, number one, far and away, the main reason. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, economists have pointed out that spending... Has been now being brought in line uh, to meet the averages of you know Quebec, Ontario, British Columbia. We're now on pace to match what other jurisdictions in the country are doing. So there was some spending reductions that went into this.
3: Um, that's true, but I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say, Shay, is like right from the very beginning uh we reject uh this this sort of narrative that the UCPs put out there uh in terms of how we compare to other provinces uh before the UCP was even elected Alberta spent less per capita than every other province in the country other than the three provinces that were identified and the reason for that is because we were larger than the other three pro- other provinces and we were smaller than those three and there's a certain amount of efficiency that comes with size and they've never talked about it, so it was actually a bogus measure to begin with. But more to the point, here's what's happened in healthcare. For instance, they claim they put more money into healthcare, but we haven't kept up with population and inflation funding in healthcare uh, relative to where we were in 2019. We're still 100 million dollars behind, and that's even with all that's happened with respect to COVID. And then, if you look at just relative to last year, we're actually 800 million over 800 million dollars less in the budget is scheduled for our health care than what we saw spent last year. So that's a, a big restriction, and that's not going to help families who are looking to get those surgeries that they've been waiting for for so long, who are looking to find a family doctor who are hoping an emergency room is open for them uh, if they live outside of the major centres should they be in an accident. There are major, major uh, failures in our health care system right now, and that's because these folks have set uh uh benchmarks, which frankly don't make any sense uh because at the end of the day they're not interested in supporting our public health care system.
1: This is one of the largest funding increases in the history of the province when it comes to healthcare care. How much more would you be putting into health care
3: it's It's really not they're playing around with the games they say are uh, playing around quite a bit. they say, oh, we put in one point eight billion well that's over several or one point six that's over several over years. three or four years. sure yeah, yeah. That's right, this year it's under 600 million. Uh, With that extra money, two things. First of all, they're still $100 million short of where they would be if they'd simply funded for population and inflation going back to our last budget. Secondly, last year, because of COVID, there was an additional $850 million in the budget, which is now gone. So we're actually short $850 million compared to last year. They're playing games when they use these numbers. Uh, they are, in fact, intentionally uh, starving the healthcare system uh, because they want to open up uh, more opportunities for not only privately delivered but ultimately privately funded care. That's something that we saw in the report that they released right before the COVID pandemic, and now they're back to work on that. So. Um, yeah no they're not they're being very disingenuous with the numbers that they're using Shay and you'll hear about that from more and more people when we see the kinds of health care services that Albertans struggle to receive
1: um i, I- Running out of time, but I know you're in Calgary today because you want to be there as part of the announcement and some of the outrage the Calgarians, uh, City Council and the Chamber are feeling in terms of the way they felt they were handled in the budget. We know what Edmonton's mayor has said. He felt insulted and ignored by the provincial budget. Sounds like the the, the two big cities in our province, not 100% pleased. So what's your message in Calgary today?
3: Well, my message is is that we understand that Calgary actually is a critically important uh, p- uh, component and and partner in terms of our overall economic recovery and our ability to diversify. And there is a serious problem with respect to what's going on in Calgary's downtown. Um, and and so th- it's outrageous that there was no attention paid to that as well. I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on healthcare, but the fact is is there was no additional funding. Uh, outlined in that budget uh, to staff the the new Calgary Cancer Centre. Um, so we've got a new Calgary Cancer Centre, and the additional services it's supposed to be able to offer, there's no new money for that. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which they've let down Calgary, not to mention all municipalities, be taking about a billion dollar hit this year um, collectively. So there's going to be a lot of pressures. And what that's going to mean is those those upfront community services that that folks rely on won't be there and they'll be asked to pay more for the ones that they do have.
1: Um, In speaking with the finance minister this morning, um, he often explained whatever they were doing as we inherited this. We were in a hole when we started, when we took over, spending was out of control on and on and on. Um, No. Your response?
3: Well, you know, there's even conservatives out there who will say, um, you know, sort of thoughtful, uh, well-researched conservatives who will say that in the last 20 years, um, our government actually had the most careful and, and prudent uh, um, effort to bring spending under control relative to the 15 or 20 years that preceded us. Um, what these folks are doing is very different, though. They don't actually support public education. They don't actually support public health care. So they're going about the task of cutting in there uh, with because in, in a way that's designed to push people to more private options. And and that's going to be letting down um, uh, a lot of Albertans. And the other thing that's really important, the point that I want to make, is when we were last in government, uh, we had uh, more equality between what regular Albertans were paying in their income tax and what profitable corporations were paying. What's happened now is that corporations are still about a billion paying just under a billion dollars less in taxes than they were in 2019. And that's even with them having a 30 percent bump in their profits. Meanwhile, regular Albertans are paying two or three billion dollars more. So they're shifting the tax burden on to regular families while letting their, you know, well-off CEOs get away with it all. But we're not seeing the kind of uh, uh, job creation that that was supposed to have delivered to Albertans. And so um, it's it's a it's a, a, hole that they've dug, but it's a hole that they've dug for themselves by um, uh, handing over these massive, massive
1: corporate uh, um, uh, handouts. Ms. Um, I mean, Notley, unfortunately I'm out of time, but I do appreciate you joining us today. Thanks.
0: I'm really looking forward
1: to our next conversation. Um, Tom Nichols uh, is or has been, I'm not sure, I'll have to find out for sure, a uh, U.S. Naval War College professor, uh, Harvard Extension School, uh, Air Force School of Strategic Force Studies, he, and he's a specialist in international security, including Russia, including nuclear strategy, including NATO, all of the issues at hand today. So I'm really delighted that he could join us today. Uh, Tom, thanks for taking some time. I know you must be uh, very much in demand these days. It's good to be with you. Um, let's just start. First of all, give us your take on where we are, what you're seeing, specifically in regards to Vladimir Putin. A lot of people speculating. You know, can we can we reliably trust that we can deal with this guy on rational terms? Where do you stand on where we are? Well, I'm a little worried
4: about Putin. I, mean, I think he what his he's done is reckless, and I think his speeches um, over the past three days have been increasingly unhinged. Uh, just uh, today. He called on the Ukrainian military to depose Zelensky in a coup and referred to the Ukrainian government as neo-Nazis and drug addicts. Um, you know, this is getting increasingly desperate and unhinged. I think um, he hasn't yet committed the heaviest bulk of his forces. I think this, if uh, things don't go well for him, he's gonna, this is going to get a lot worse. I think Russian military performance has been worse and Ukrainian military performance has been better than most of us might have expected. But I think this can only end one way. Um, you know, if the Russians really want to crush this country of 40 million people, they can do it. But um, as the former Secretary of Defense Panetta said uh, just a few minutes ago, they'll have to do it at the cost of creating a gigantic humanitarian disaster. So I'm very worried about this. I'm worried about this whole business getting completely out of control. Um, Um, And, and, uh, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen.
1: Yeah, Tom, I don't want to hear that from a guy like you, because if anybody knows, it's going to be you. I mean, uh, just tell us, you wrote a piece in The Atlantic yesterday talking about, you know, the fact that we nuclear war is a possibility, but you were also very cautious in your piece saying, I'm not saying this is going to happen. (laughs) Sounds like maybe you've had a change of heart in the last 24 hours.
4: I'm still not worried it's going to happen, but I worry that when you cut loose 190,000 troops in the middle of Europe and start the biggest war since World War II in the middle of Europe, um, accidents and miscalculations can happen. I'm not. I'm not worried that anybody's going to do anything intentionally. I think Putin's. Um, unhinged and reckless but i don't think he's he's crazy mm-hmm. uh but that you know that doesn't mean that accidents and and uh, miscalculations and misunderstandings can't happen um you know the whole point of nato was to keep the peace in europe and i think putin is trying at the, nato this morning had a meeting there they said putin has shattered the peace of europe after 75 years um and so i i'm still concerned about that um, but I, I don't want people to be inordinately worried about that. I wrote that as a kind of explainer of this, these are the possibilities, but in part to assure people that there are unlikely possibilities for now.
1: As far as NATO goes, and you're right, they had their meeting this morning and they're talking about, you know, bolstering forces around in Eastern Europe and things like that. Um, It seems to me like they're they're trying to do what they can without, and they're being very careful to say this is non-escalatory. We don't want to escalate things. You know, what is the strategy that NATO could possibly deploy here? What is the end game here? Yeah, NATO, other than providing
4: weapons uh, and assistance to Ukrainians, NATO has no real role here. I mean, we're not going to send in uh, Western forces. We're not going to – I know some people are not talking about a no-fly zone, but we're not going to end up you know, fighting the Russians in the skies. The, the sad reality of geography and power is that uh, this is Russia's war, and they can conduct it in Europe as long as they want to unfortunately. But um, other than that, what NATO and what you're seeing now is NATO sending forces to reassure its allies. There are four NATO countries around the border of Ukraine. And um, I think that's NATO reassuring its members to say, you know, this will not happen to you. We're, we're here. The alliance is steady. We're all on the same page and together. And I think that's important to do.
1: And of course, Ukraine not being part of NATO, it's sort of, well, that's a lost cause. We'll just work on containment and make sure that the the alliance members are okay. But there's really not much we can do in terms of Ukraine.
4: Right. We, we, there, there is no alliance. We have no defense treaty of any kind with them. Um, you know, there's just not, mo- and yeah. again, that's that's part of the tragedy of international relations sometimes. Um, but that's just the situation that we're in.
1: Is that enough for Putin? Will he stop there? There's a lot of people saying, you know, no, he wants to rebuild the former USSR. Um, you know, do we know what his ambition is, what his motivation is? Well, he definitely wants to rebuild the former USSR. And I I can't believe I'm saying those words because
4: I, for 30 years, I've never thought there was anybody crazy or stupid enough to want to try that. Um, I suspect if he gets away with this, Moldova is probably next on his to-do list. Um, I don't think he's going to try to do this to NATO territory, because I think even he understands that would be World War III. Right. Um, But, you know, there are other areas around, there are other non-NATO members in other areas around Russia, including Georgia and, and Moldova, that he's had his eye on.
1: So, uh, I guess the bottom line here, Tom, before I let you go, is we're just going to have to, I mean, it sounds like you're saying Ukraine, possibly Moldova, some of these areas that aren't NATO. I mean, there's really not much we can do but sit back and watch and make sure it doesn't get into NATO territory.
4: Well, we can make this hurt for the Russians. I mean, I think... Financially and stuff? That's the other thing you're saying. Financially, yes. Um, You know, there's a lot of oligarchs with a lot of yachts parked all over Europe, and and, uh, it's time to... Um, to bring the pain on people that are supporting this regime in Russia. You know, as I, I keep saying, the oligarchs who live in Europe, if, they, if they're that, if they Russian patriots and they love Russia that much, then perhaps it's time to send them back to actually go live there. Right. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, again, there isn't, there isn't much we can do other than use the considerable financial and economic resources of the West
1: to make this hurt for the people that are supporting this. Tom Nichols, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. You bet, Shay. Thank you. That is Tom Nichols, who is uh, an author and a professor, uh, international expert in um, Russia and nuclear weapons and NATO and all the rest. And uh, as I said, very much in demand. So, uh, as it's been all week, we've got... uh, you know, a huge story every minute, it seems. Uh, what we're watching this morning is the meeting of NATO, the heads of state of the 30 countries in NATO, um, meeting this morning, virtually, of course. Uh, at the conclusion, they, they're all blasting Russia uh, for the actions they've taken in Ukraine. And then in a shared statement that came out this morning, they stated that Russia bears full responsibility for this conflict. Okay, I think we agree on that. I think we're good on that. Uh, we can say Russia bears full responsibility, fine. What do we do about it, though? How do we handle it? I think that's the bigger question that we need some answers to. Uh, Let's check in now with Erica Simpson, who is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Western University and president of the Canadian Peace Research Association and author of NATO and the Bomb. Erica, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Hi, you're welcome. The situation that we're seeing with NATO—I mean, obviously they're—they're in, they're in a spot here. There's no question about it. We haven't seen something like this in a very, very long time. But um, just what you heard from NATO today, okay? They're—they're they're blaming Russia. Uh, okay, Russia's responsible, right? I mean, we understand that at this point.
5: They're saying that Russia is responsible, but they will not themselves, the NATO allies, take military action in Ukraine. So although they will deploy more forces to the, to the borders yes. and to the eastern flank and to the NATO allies, the 30 members that you were talking about, um, they themselves will not engage in military action inside Ukraine. It will affect your listeners in Edmonton because the price of oil has already shot up yep. to $105 a barrel, and you're going to see a lot more Ukrainian refugees out in Alberta because so many people are, are you have such a large uh, Ukrainian diaspora, Huge. we have the biggest one in the world. Yep. So there's going to be a lot of pressure to take in, like we did with the Afghans, more than 20,000 refugees, for sure. Like, I think we'll we'll see a huge demand, especially from Saskatchewan and from Alberta, to take in uh, the Omas and the families that um, have been left really without farms and without schools and sleeping in the subways. Yes, yeah. On. That's what we're seeing on the news.
1: Um <laughs> What do you think the discussion was like at the NATO meeting this morning? What sort of considerations are they having to make as they decide how best to respond to this?
5: Well, I think you can say that the United States is the hegemon. It, it makes the decisions, and Anthony Blinken, who is the U.S. Secretary of State, uh, uh, and uh, obviously President Biden will make the decisions about the commitments. And really, we saw that too with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Once the United States decide to pull out, the other allies like um, uh, Italy and, and Germany and uh, also pulled out. So in this case, we don't know because it's a closed-in-camera secret discussion. You'll never know what happened, but I know from talking to different people at NATO headquarters. I have an intern there now. Um, one of my PhD students is an intern there. Talking to him on the on the you know in that NATO headquarters and so and so on. He can't say what the secret discussions are, but we we know behind the scenes that they shared the intelligence about the Russian movements. They shared it widely. Uh, they shared their information and they shared their proposals. So we saw those proposals that were leaked. In in a spanish newspaper and i've read them very carefully and they were pretty 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 good like they were offering to make some concessions on nuclear weapons and on strategic and tactical nuclear weapons so i don't think we can blame the united states entirely i mean you were saying blame russia yeah. entirely the u.s did expand uh and that made uh putin very threatened he has said endlessly since um, he was involved in the treaty uh, in in, in negotiating way back in 2014 that he felt that uh, NATO was getting too close to the Russian borders and to what he sees as the Russian Empire. So, you know, should we have expanded, should NATO, should the West have expanded so close? They did not take in Ukraine. They talked to Ukraine. Ukraine is officially a partner, just like Georgia is a partner, but they are not allies. And that's why NATO is not going to be fighting in Ukraine, on Ukrainian, um, like a ground war. It right, yeah. will not
1: undertake a ground war there. Uh, announced, I'm just reading on CNN here, for the, for the first time ever, the NATO Response Force has been activated as a defensive measure. What can you tell us about the NATO Response Force and what that means?
5: Well, the United States has said they will commit more troops to that. So they're talking about 5,000 troops. That uh, response force has not been deployed before. It kind of is reminiscent of the United Nations wanted to have a rapid reaction right. capability way back in the 1990s. That idea fell through because no country was going to commit troops to to station troops permanently. So, but the NATO response capability is much more successful. They've trained together, and I'm not sure where they're going to be deployed, but we can imagine it will probably be in the Baltic countries, in Lithuania. In Latvia and in Estonia, probably closer to Lithuania, Lithuania because it 's closest to the Russian enclave, which is called Kaliningrad, which is on the Baltic Sea. so the concern is and i 'm going on a bit here, but the the concern is let 's say this war expands yeah. beyond Ukraine and beyond Belarus. What happens in the long run if in the few years, let's say, the Russians try to build a corridor and make a corridor toward Kaliningrad, toward their Russian enclave, that would... That would um, mean that there would be a war against NATO. So the rapid reaction response teams will go there, and they may go to Poland. They may go to Romania, but Romania and Hungary have been, and Bulgaria have been more reluctant to take NATO forces, and they're arguing that they themselves, especially Bulgaria, is saying that it can protect itself with its own Bulgarian forces. So there's those internal um you know, little fights and and, and, and difficulties. But overall, Putin has kind of got what he didn't want, which is a united NATO and a united European Union, because the European Union um, has also announced just a couple of hours ago that they're going to impose heavy sanctions and remember the European Union relies a great deal on gas Very much. from Russia. So for, for for people in Alberta, it's really important to understand that already the German government has, has halted the uh, key Russian gas pipeline, which is called Nord Stream Two, that was going to take gas from Russia under the Baltic Sea. That's been halted. That will they're saying never go ahead. And so there will be more reliance on North America. How will we get the gas there? I don't know. That's something that maybe your listeners will have some ideas about. I don't know about that. How, how Canada would export more gas to Europe.
1: Um, last one before I let you go here. Where does it go yeah. from here? I mean, did, it seems like NATO has sort of taken a, a strategy of containment. Um, let's see. I mean, it looks like Ukraine may be lost, but let's keep it contained to that and not let it escalate. Do you think that's a fair assessment? What, where do we go from here?
5: Yeah, I think that the old policy of containment um, where where you decided if a country would be part of NATO based on its geographic location is probably going to decide Ukraine's fate. I don't think that Ukraine or Georgia will ever be NATO allies, they'll be partners, Um, but basically NATO's Article 5 which is then an armed attack against one of us is an attack, yeah. like the three musketeers, an armed attack against one of us is an attack against us all. That will govern the 30 allies for the future, but I don't think it will govern Ukraine and Georgia and other would-be countries that want to join NATO. So that's where we're sitting. We don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine in the days ahead, but let's all just hope and pray that uh, the Ukrainians themselves are not, thousands of them are not killed, mm-hmm. especially women and children. We're all concerned
1: about that, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a horrible situation. Erica, great insight. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you. You too. That's so Erica welcome. Simpson, who is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Western University, president of the Canadian Peace Research Association and author of NATO and the Bomb getting a lot of expert analysis and insight into this. And uh, it's good. It's good. I think that's what we all need. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.